So for eight weeks now, we have been going to school on the life of Peter. We've been studying his life, who he was, what he has to say to us, hearing stories about his highs and about his lows, and uh, learning how we should respond to life situations and sometimes how we shouldn't respond to life situations, you know, given that it's Peter. And as we wrap up today in our conversation on the life of Peter, maybe you're expecting to go out on this high point, right? To finish on top, to hear from Peter the final words of encouragement from his life. This is what it takes. Do this, and you would be right. That is what we're going to do. But probably you wouldn't be right about the subject matter, about what it takes to succeed in this life. Instead of reading a story about Peter today, we're going to look at uh, one of his epistles, one of the letters that was penned by Peter's own hand, and what he wrote to the early church, to early Christians, to give them some words of instruction. And in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, he tells us exactly what we can expect and what can help us to become the Christians that God wants us to become. And the answer, Peter's final word of encouragement is to suffer well. Suffer well is what Peter has to say to us today. These are the words of a British journalist as he gave an interview towards the end of his life. He said this, As an old man looking back on one's life, it's one of the things that strikes you most forcibly, that the only thing that's taught one anything is suffering. Not success, not happiness, not anything like that. The only thing that really teaches one what life is about is suffering. And if you really think about it, he's right about that. Uh, Most of us do not learn very much from good health, happy days, money in the bank, and good fortune. We enjoy these things. They make us happy. They make us content. But we don't learn a lot from them. The times that we learn the most difficult but the most rewarding lessons in life is when we have spent time in the school of hard knocks to learn the lessons that God has for us. And I believe we learn the most about how to live for and how to please God when we walk through suffering, when we suffer well. And this is a point that Peter comes back to again and again in his letter in 1 Peter. And now he returns to it one final time in 1 Peter chapter 4. And this is really, this is kind of the summit of the book of 1 Peter. Uh, When we reach verse 19, we have come to the climax of his teaching on how to respond to suffering in a godly way. He weaves it through everything he talks about. It is so important to him. And the passage sums up really four major lessons that we need to know, that we need to own about hard times in the Christian life. And the first lesson we all need to learn about suffering as a believer is this. Hard times are to be expected because they develop our character. Hard times are to be expected because they develop our character. I told you, this is going to be a unique message today. You're like, man, you're really starting on a downer. No, 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 I'm going to be downer the whole time. (laughs) So just buckle up, folks. 1 Peter 4.12, and here's the thing. I struggled, uh, struggled preparing this message because what happens is I'm, I, God led me to this passage, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk about suffering. And I'm thinking, oh, God, why are you having me preach on suffering? You know, I mean, there's a little bit of nervousness here as a pastor because I'm thinking usually when I'm preaching about something, it's something that God wants to deal with me about before he deals with y'all. 
And I'm like, what's going to happen to me? So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll pray about that later. 1 Peter 4.12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. In other words, expect it. This is a message the American church needs to hear. Because we don't really understand this, to be honest. I think there are far too many American Christians who automatically think something is wrong when they're suffering. You hear what I'm saying? Discipleship is tough. It, discipleship is not about memorizing more scripture. It's not about learning theology, although those things can definitely help. Discipleship is about walking the path Jesus walked. That's discipleship. It's about learning how to live like Jesus lived. And a good part of Jesus' journey involves suffering. Suffering is part of the Christian life, even painful suffering. And here's the thing. Believers in other parts of the world, they understand this way better than we do. Here are some of the current headlines. I just looked this up last night from different websites on the persecuted church around the world. Nigeria, Nigerian army unit watched as militants burned Christian houses last night. Myanmar, junta sets places of worship on fire in Sagaing region. North Korea, secret believers in North Korea discovered and killed. Vietnam, Vietnamese family driven from home for their faith and told to sign document denying persecution. Ukraine, Russians arrest evangelical pastor in Mariupol, Ukraine. Guys, this is just a sampling of the current, this is not historic, this is right now, current headlines on the persecuted church. And guess what? For every one headline that we know the story, there's probably a hundred that we will never hear about. And it's when we think about Christians around the world and what they face on a daily basis that Peter's introductory words in this section, dear friends, becomes so important. The phrase, dear friends, actually means those who are deeply loved by God. Those who are deeply loved by God. That's huge, and that is not just a throwaway line. It's not just some, some courtesy intro here. It's key to everything that Peter wants us to know in this passage. This is what he means. God loves you deeply. He loves you profoundly. So don't be surprised when you suffer as a Christian. Now that sounds like a disconnect, right? God loves you deeply. God loves you profoundly. So don't be surprised when you suffer as a believer. That's a head scratcher, right? That's a hard connection for most of us to make. We live in an age where most of the best-selling books in America are about how to live your best life, how to live with positivity, how to ensure, you know, that you have success in everything you do. Peter would say this. Peter would say living for Christ is the best life you can have, and it always includes suffering. That's how Peter would say it. He probably wouldn't write a bestseller. You can't escape suffering, though. And most of us don't think that way. We are surprised, and sometimes we're caught off guard when trials come, when how, and, and how they come, and where they come from, and we think, we don't deserve this. This shouldn't be happening to me. Chuck Swindoll, a famous Christian author and pastor, says, if we view life as a schoolroom and God as the instructor, it should come as no surprise when we encounter pop quizzes and periodic exams. 
Maturity in the Christian life is measured by our ability to withstand the tests that come our way without having them shake our foundation or throw us into an emotional tailspin. So let me ask you a difficult question up front this morning. How did you score on your latest exam? When you faced persecution, when you had to endure suffering of some kind, did you face the challenge biblically with God as your strength or did you collapse under the pressure and complain to everyone that would listen and even those who wouldn't? And let me be the first to say, I have not passed every exam that I've ever had either. Uh, plenty of people, I've, I've, I've dealt with these and failed them time and time again. And plenty of people in the Bible failed this test as well. So if you didn't handle suffering the way that you would have liked or the way the Bible says God would have wanted you to handle it, know that you're in good company and that we're all growing. Which brings us to the second lesson Peter wants us to learn about suffering, and that is that hard times bring us closer to God. Verses 13 and 14. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. According to Peter in these verses here, God blesses us three different ways when we suffer for him. Okay, the first way is participation. He blesses us with participation. We share in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, we become more like Jesus. As we endure this, as we go through this, as we rely on him to make our way through this, we become more like Christ through our sufferings. And so we participate with him. The second way that he blesses us is through an impartation. We experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our lives to strengthen us as we go through that. He says, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. God gives us his spirit to provide strength and power for us as we suffer, as we go through those difficult times. And then finally, the last blessing he gives us is exaltation. So participation, impartation, and exaltation. And that is this. Exaltation means to get really, really excited about something. We will rejoice when we see Christ. We will rejoice when we see Christ. He says, we, we, these trials make you partners with Christ so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Guys, when we finally see Jesus... When we put eyes on Jesus, we will know that this life is over and eternity has begun. And guys, there's no greater joy that you will ever experience than that. Here's what I want all of us to understand, and this is one of those sermons that, as I said, is difficult to preach. It's not a fun one to prepare, and some of the truths God is having me deliver today, I'd rather not have to. Sheesh, Pastor Jeff, we're two weeks from Easter. Can't we celebrate a little? Yes, we will celebrate a lot. And it's going to be awesome. But today is kind of a little bit of a reality check for us. Because here's the truth. As much as you think it's hard sometimes to be a Christian, we don't have a clue what hardship in following Jesus looks like. We don't know that here in America. Yet. 
Christians around the world deal with persecution at a level we've never even considered here in America. But I just want to tell you, church, the day will come. I'm not a date setter. I have no idea what that's going to look like and when it's going to come and how things will transition. But I promise you, the Bible says in the end, Christians will be persecuted everywhere, even in the good old U.S. of A., even in Texas. I know. It seems crazy. But, guys, we need to understand that the day of persecution will come. And we need to pre be prepared for that. The reality is it's likely that it will have actually happened here. And we're part, now, we're part of the persecution of the church around the world. Not that we're doing it, but we are a part of the body of Christ. And so if the church is being persecuted, guess what? We are being persecuted. Even though it hasn't reached us yet, we're all part of the persecuted church because that's what the Bible teaches we should expect and will come. The people of the world, here's the deal, they hate the name of Jesus. They don't want to hear it. Generic God is okay. Jesus is not. They hate who he is, what he said, and what he did and if, because it was exclusive. And you know in this world today, exclusive doesn't work. All accepting is, is the God in our culture, and, and really not just in our culture, globally. And if we would renounce our allegiance, the world would leave us alone. They don't hate us. They hate Christ in us. They don't persecute us. They persecute Christ in us. And here's a thought. The world doesn't persecute a worldly Christian, only a godly one. So persecution is a sign that you are doing what God wants you to do. You're on the right path if you're being persecuted for your faith. Did you notice the word partner in verse 13? We partner with Christ. It's the verb form of the Greek word koinonia, which is usually translated in the Bible as fellowship. To most of us, fellowship implies something positive or happy, like a picnic or a party at someone's home or a, or a potluck dinner. But here, Peter speaks of having fellowship in the suffering of Christ. Our sufferings join us together with Jesus in a way that nothing else can. Let me illustrate this way by making a little diagram. Here we have, on one side, us. On the other side, Christ. I know I worked really hard on this diagram, so. And we're pretty far apart from Jesus, okay? And really, don't think there's enough dots because we're pretty far from Jesus, how can we get from where we are to where Christ is? And there's lots of answers to that question. We can read the Bible. We can pray. We can worship. We can sing. We can praise. We can share our faith. We can be generous. We can listen to sermons. Uh, we can exercise our faith, use our spiritual gifts, spend time with other believers, all these things, on and on and on. And I could add quite a, a number of things to that list, and all of them would be helping, helpful in drawing us closer to Christ. But for most of us, even when we do all these things, we may feel that we're like this now. Okay, it's moved us closer. And Peter wants us to understand that nothing moves us closer to Christ than when we go through hard times. You could try as hard as you want to become more like Jesus, but you're probably not going to get all the way there. It's not that suffering in and of itself brings us to Christ. Suffering is not magic. It doesn't make you Jesus. 
But here's the thing. It's what suffering does to us and does in us that makes us more like Jesus. When we are flat on our faces, when we've been knocked down again and again, and at some point, if we truly know the Lord, we give up our pride and in sheer desperation, we cry out to God for help. I can't. Most of us can identify with the famous poem about the footprints in the sand. Two sets of footprints, ours and the Lord's, and then there's only one set. And then we, we notice it was when we were going through the most difficult times of our lives, and we asked God, why did you leave me alone when I need you the most? And he replied, when you saw only one set of footprints, I was carrying you. We generally only see that in the rearview mirror, though. That's not something that we notice when we're in it, after the trial is over. And God allows us to go through hard times so that we will be like this. Because what happens is this. God intends that our hard times move us from where we are to where Christ is. God intends that our hard times move us from where we are to where Christ is. You see, God doesn't move closer to you when you suffer. Do you understand that? God doesn't move closer to you when you suffer. You know how I know that? Because God's with you all the time. God doesn't need to get closer to you because God is with you. We move closer to God. Our hearts become more inclined toward him. We abandon our comforts, those things that keep us content, and we run to the only one who can give us real, lasting peace and joy in our lives. And that moves us next to Jesus. Okay, next lesson. Hard times should lead us to self-examination. Hard times should lead us to self-examination. When we are going through trials and we are going through suffering, we need to examine our lives, and here's why. 1 Peter 4, 15 to 18. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, we'll talk about what that means, what will happen to godless sinners? So let's deal with the rough part of this verse first, and that's the beginning. Sometimes we bring trouble on ourselves. Some of our suffering is self-inflicted. And when we do, we need to own that. And that's why we need to take a look. That's why we need to get in front of the mirror and say, okay, where am I at? Where, what am I doing? Where is the inclination of my heart and my life? And what are my actions? Do they line up with the word of God? Don't blame. Don't point fingers. Don't look around for a scapegoat or an excuse if it's yourself that has brought this suffering, these consequences into your life. Own your part and repent. I tell my kids this all the time. When you mess up, come clean. Just tell me what you did and make it right. And it's going to go far better for you if you do. Uh, the punishment will be lighter. The pain and suffering you'll endure on the other side is far less than if you tried to play it off or blame someone else and I find out later, oh, not good. And this just isn't me as a dad who responds this way. God will bless someone who doesn't make excuses for their bad behavior, who owns it. How do I know that? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You know, you know what that means? If we own it, if we don't make excuses, if we don't pretend it never happened, but if we confess and repent and make things right with God, he's going to purify us and forgive us. Notice that. Cleanse us from all wickedness. God will not only forgive us, but he will set it right. He will purify us. He will cleanse us. Make us pure again. But unfortunately, we don't always get to that point of owning our mistakes right away, do we? Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it takes some doing to get us to that point. That's where consequences come in. And that's precisely Peter's point in verse 15. If you do wrong, you should expect to suffer. You're going to face consequences for your actions. Note that he specifies four categories of wrongdoers here. The first three go together. Murderers, thieves, criminals. Okay? Then he says, or prying into other people's affairs. Could you just not come up with something better, Peter? It doesn't quite seem to fit with the first three, does it? A busybody? A meddler? I mean, what does that person do? Here's what he does. He barges in where he's not wanted or needed and makes things worse by what he says or what he does. If you suffer for sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong, don't complain. There are nosy troublemakers in every walk of life. There's nosy troublemakers in your household. There's nosy troublemakers at your office, even church. There's people who are on the phone texting or writing emails about things that don't concern them, who make things worse and not better, who like to talk and gossip about other people's troubles because it makes them look good or makes them feel superior. Peter puts meddling in the same list with murder because it's a form of character assassination. Then Peter adds, but if you suffer as a Christian. In other words, if it's not self-inflicted, if it's for the cause of Christ, he shifts gears. Now listen to this. In the Roman Empire of the first century, there was this cult of Caesar worship, okay? They worshiped Caesar as a god that Rome pushed throughout its empire, and it helped unify the many nations that Rome ruled because they feared and worshiped Caesar, now, this is interesting. The word Caesar in Greek is Caesar. And those who worshipped Caesar were called Caesarianos. Okay, that was what they referred to them as, uh, Caesarianos. And as the gospel began to spread, the followers of Jesus were given a nickname by the Romans and the Greeks. They were called Christianos, Christ followers. And it was a mocking term. It was, it was derisive. It was, it was intended to make fun of them. It was an insult. Because the early believers refused to go along and say, Caesar is Lord. They would rather die than say those words. And this is why the early church was persecuted. And that is why they were called Christians. So the lines were drawn very early. Caesar or Christ. Choose. And what if it comes down to that? For you, Caesar, the God of this world, or Christ? What will you do? What if they threaten you because of your faith? Peter's answer is very, very clear. Don't be ashamed. And I think we all would agree, based on the message a few weeks ago, that for Peter, this is very personal. For Peter, this is, hits very close to home. I think he remembered that dark night when Jesus was arrested. When he warmed himself around the fire and a young girl said to him, weren't you one of his disciples? And he denied Jesus. 
cursing. Three times he denied Christ. Then the rooster crowed. Peter knew all about the shame because he never forgot the night that he denied Jesus. And the word ashamed means to dishonor. Don't do anything to dishonor the name of the Lord. Instead, praise God that he believes you are worthy to suffer for his name. If Jesus lays his cross on your back, don't be ashamed to carry it. And at this point, you know, as we face persecution, good theology, a good understanding of what the Bible really teaches helps us a ton. Verse 17 says that judgment begins with God's family. Judgment begins with the church. The Lord starts with his own children. We will be judged one day. Okay, I hope, hope you know your Bible well enough to know that you will stand before God to face judgment. Not for your sin, because that's covered by Christ. So for those of us who are Christians, who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will not be judged for your sin, because that has been atoned for. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But we will stand before God and be judged for our actions by what we did in this life with what he entrusted to us, by the opportunities that we had. And boy, I can think back over the course of my life and say, that's not going to be fun. I'm sure we all can think of moments where we're like, man, I'm going to have to give an account for that. But the Lord starts with his own children. Persecution, as we face persecution in this life, it forces us to decide where we stand and what we believe. Some of you will never really know where you stand with God until you are persecuted for your faith. God allows the persecutors to turn up the heat so that we are purified by our trials. Remember the first verse said we face fiery trials? That's, that's not a pleasant word picture, is it? <laughs> we face fiery trials as followers of Jesus. But fire doesn't just cause pain. It also purifies. Fire makes whole. It removes everything that's not supposed to be there, and that may not be much comfort if you're going through some furnace time right now in your life, and you're dealing with it, and the heat's being turned up on you, but at least it shows us that even though we may be facing hard times, God is still in control. But if judgment starts with us, it won't end with us, Peter says. Verse 18 asks a good question. What terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And the answer is they're in big trouble. We're saved by grace, and still we're judged, judged as God's children. He disciplines us to make us holy. But what about those of us, what about those who don't know the Lord? And why do you think Peter asks this question? I mean, he's writing to the church, so obviously they know the answer, right? What's going to happen to those who don't know Jesus? They know the answer. But he asks the question anyway, and I think this is why. I think it's because that after explaining what we have to look forward to in this life, you will be persecuted, you will face trials, you will have to endure, and it's not going to be fun. Some Christians might be tempted to throw in the towel at that point. To say it's not worth it. And Peter reminds us here why it is so very, very, very worth it. Any suffering we have to endure in this lifetime, it is worth it to press forward, to keep going. No matter what you're facing right now, let me remind you, God is for you, God is with you, and God is preparing you, not for this life, but for the next one, the one that will never end. He's preparing us for eternity.
Verse 18 says it's hard for the righteous to be saved. The New Living translates it as barely saved. And what that translation means is that we hold on to our faith by the skin of our teeth sometimes. Why? He's speaking of the troubles and the difficulties of the Christian life. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Amazing Grace says. Hard times are part of God's mercy to us. They cause us to let go of our love of the world and they make us hungry for heaven. And this isn't a sermon about heaven, but how often do you stop and think about what heaven is going to be like? In my case, I'll be honest, not enough. I really probably should stop and think about it more. Because the Bible describes heaven as paradise, as pure joy, as no sorrow, no pain, no sin, nothing bad happening ever. It's perfection. It's God's presence in a place that he has specifically created for us to enjoy for all of eternity. The one who created you, the one who wired you, the one who gave you the desires that you have that are wholesome and not sinful, everything that you are and want will be fulfilled in heaven. It's perfection. And I think that if we thought a little bit more about what we were headed toward instead of what we're going through, we'd have an easier time going through it. But the problem is we get blinders on and instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith... Instead, we fix our eyes on the problem. We fix our eyes on the persecution. We fix our eyes on on the garbage, on the mess. We fix our eyes there when Jesus said, or when Paul wrote, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look ahead. Look to what's coming. Look to heaven. Fix your eyes there. You know, when Stephen was getting stoned, the first recorded Christian martyr, when he was getting stoned to death, Did he look at the rocks and say, oh, no, I'm about to get hit? No, the Bible records him as looking up into heaven and saying, I see Jesus. He was looking to where he was going, not to what he was in the middle of. And that's a lesson every one of us should grab hold of. It is hard to make it to heaven. We barely make it through this sinful world. It is only by Jesus' blood, by God's word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we survive the trials of this life. We suffer a little here, and then we enter heaven. You say, Jeff, how could you say I suffer a little? You have no idea what I've gone through in this life. I say suffer a little because at the top end, we're talking 100 years. We're talking eternity, folks. And I know we can't wrap our head around eternity. You know, when I, was, when I was growing up, I was in like fourth grade Sunday school class, and our teacher was trying to teach us what eternity was. And he went and he took a marker and he put it up on the wall, put a little dot there. And he said, that's your life. And then he took the marker, kid you not, marker, walked along the wall <laughs> and drew a line. Up that, walked around the entire room came all the way back around. There was a line on the wall. Came all the way back around and ended at that line. He goes, eternity has just begun. And I'm like, okay. I still remember it from fourth grade. It's a long time ago. But guys, we have to understand that the suffering we endure in this life is but a little in comparison to eternity. But for those who don't know the Lord, 
they enter eternal torment. Separation from God for eternity. And right now it may seem like maybe they have it better because unbelievers take God's patience for granted. But the day is coming when God's patience will yield to his judgment. There's a story told about an old Saxon king who set out with an army to stop a rebellion in uh, a distant province of his kingdom. So he gathered his soldiers and they went out and they, when the insurrection had been shut down and uh, the army of the rebels was defeated, the king uh, set up in his castle where he had his headquarters there and he put a candle over the archway of his castle and he lit the candle and he announced through a herald to all who had been in the rebellion against him that those who surrendered and took the oath of loyalty while the candle was burning would be spared. And the king offered them his mercy unconditionally. But the offer was limited to the life of the candle. When the candle burned out, his mercy ended. And in the same way, God's patience has a time limit. I won't say it has a limit because God's patience has no limit, but it has a time limit. There's an expiration date on God's patience for us to respond. Exodus 34, verse 7, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. When the candle of God's patience finally burns out, no one will be able to accuse him of acting rashly or impulsively. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's God's heart. God's heart is not to send anyone to hell. And he's made a way for everyone to be saved. So God will send no one to hell. Instead, we will send ourselves there by rejecting his offer of forgiveness through Jesus. And if you're not right with God, don't sit back and wait on God's patience. I'm not ready yet. I've got plenty of time. Because one day, and the reality is any day, your life will come to an end and the day of salvation will be over for you. Today he holds back his judgment so you can run to the cross and you can be saved. Make the most of God's patience while you can. Turn from your sin. Trust Jesus before the candle burns out. Everything we experience in this life, everything, every trial we go through, every consequence for our sin, every moment is designed to prepare us for heaven. When you experience hard times in this life, take time to examine your life, your motives, your actions, your desires, and ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want to change in me? And then respond. The last lesson Peter teaches us here about suffering is that hard times teach us to trust God in new ways. 1 Peter 4.19, So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. That verse, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible for when you're going through hard times. That verse is incredible, and it's special to me for a very personal reason. Years ago, we lived in Arizona where I served for six years as pastor of a church that was about 80 years old, been around for a long time, and after a period after I got there, we saw a period of huge growth and blessing when we got there, and then a few years later, there came a time of difficulty and division in the church. 
And it started with one thing and led to another, and then it spread to something else. And it was, it was really one of the saddest experiences of my life. And looking back, I can see things more clearly now than I could then. Because, you know, when you're in the middle of chaos, it's, it's hard to get your bearings because you seem to be fighting an endless round of rumors and lies and all sorts of stuff. You're trying to figure out what's real, what's not. And as with most church conflicts, there was enough guilt to spread in several directions. But Melissa and I went through a period of ugly confrontations, bitter words, harsh accusations. Friendships were broken that were never fully repaired. And I had been the pastor during growth and excitement. And now I was the pastor during a hard season. And near the end of the conflict, I remember taking a long walk in the neighborhood where we lived. And this verse, 1 Peter 4.19, came to my mind. And as I walked, my mind focused on the phrase, keep on doing what is right. Keep on doing what is right. Because sometimes when the bullets are flying all around you in life, all you can think about is where can I find more ammunition, right? <laughs> and the Lord spoke to me and said, Jeff, what about pleasing me? Will you just keep doing what is right? And I began to pray that I would see God's will done in my life. No strings attached, nothing held back. Just a simple prayer. Lord, I'm tired and I can't fight anymore. I want your will in my life, whatever that means. And peace came into my heart for the first time in a long time. And that became a turning point in my life as the Lord kind of did some divine heart surgery on me. And it was not a cure-all for my problems. There were more hard times to come, but that day marked a change in me in how I viewed the difficult times we go through in life. See, when trouble comes, we generally can't do much about our circumstances. You can't change much that goes on around you. We can't make the sick well. We can't put money in the bank. We can't cause angry people to like us. But there is one thing we can do, and it's what Peter mentions in verse 19. In the middle of our suffering, we can trust our lives to the God who created us. That word translated trust is based on a banking term that means make a deposit. And that day in Arizona, I told the Lord, I've been trying to fight to make things better in my own, and they've only gotten worse. Lord, would you take over? I want to do what is right, and I want to do what pleases you. And I made a deposit of my life, of my ministry, into the bank of heaven and told God he could do whatever he wanted to do. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just stopped and said, God, I'm done. It's all you. Not because you give up, but because you give up. There's a big difference. Is that a step maybe you need to take right now? Maybe some of you are in a place of just enormous personal difficulty right now, and you can't see the way forward clearly. When life begins to crumble all around you, nothing is more important than committing yourself to God as your faithful creator, who loves you, promises to take care of you, just to place your life completely in his hands. Instead of trying to figure out how to solve your own problem, how to fix things, you need to say, Lord, I can't. Without you, I can't change anything. Let your will be done in my life. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, nothing held back. It's all yours. When we begin to pray like that, God will hear from heaven. And whether or not our circumstances change, we will change. And if there's nothing else you hear today, hear that. In the middle of your darkest circumstances in life, don't worry about changing them. 
allow God to change you. Nothing is more important than that. Peter is teaching us that every trial that comes our way is under God's control. Hear that, because that's hard to hear. Nothing can touch us that doesn't first pass through the Father's loving hands. We will never believe in the sovereignty of God in our trials unless we also believe that he loves us with an everlasting love, because they're both true. And we will never be convinced of God's love unless we fix our eyes on the cross of Christ, because here's the truth. At the cross is where we see how the evil purposes of man serve the eternal purposes of God. God allowed Jesus to be crucified. That went through God's permission, through his authority, did they swing those hammers. Through God's authority was Jesus beaten and whipped. Through God's authority did Jesus surrender his life on that cross. And so when we go through persecution, when we face difficult times, when we go through hardship, remember what Jesus endured that God allowed. In fact, it was God's plan all along. Because this life, folks, is trans transitory. This life is temporary. This life is a vapor. And then eternity. Fix your eyes on the cross. Start there. And your own troubles will come into proper focus. What God did for Jesus, he will do for you. He will deliver you. Because here's the thing. When you fix your eyes on the cross, we're looking into eternity. We're looking into heaven. If I hold my finger right here and I stare at it, it comes into focus. But when I look beyond it, far, far in the distance, guess what? I can hardly even see my finger. It's gone because I'm looking beyond it. When you have your troubles in your life, when you have all the difficulty that you're going through, don't stare at them. Stare beyond them. Stare through them into eternity and let them pass away. Never be surprised by hard times. Never blame Jesus and never be ashamed of Jesus. God uses adversity to draw us to him, to polish our lives into a reflection of Jesus, to prepare us for eternity where we will never suffer again. Would you pray with me? God, we don't like to think about suffering. We don't like to go through suffering. We don't like to watch other people suffer. It's, it's a consequence of sin. We understand that. But God, we know that suffering and the, how we go through that is a tool that you use to shape us. And so, Lord, I pray that no matter what we face in this life, God, our focus would never be on our circumstances. Our focus would never be on our problems, but God, our focus would be on you. Lord, I pray specifically for people in the room this morning who are facing hardships in a way that maybe they've never faced before in their lives. They are going through difficulties that they thought they would never have to face. For some, it's a consequence of someone else's sin, of someone else's poor choices. For some, it's a consequence of their faith and, and they're being persecuted for their faith. God, for some, it's self-inflicted. And Lord, whatever the rationale, may, whatever the reason is behind what they're going through, Lord, I pray that the result would be the same, that they would draw close to you. And Lord, I pray as a church family that we would come together, 
That, God, we would not let somebody drift away during times of persecution, during times of suffering, but, God, we would pull them more tightly to us than they've ever been. God, let us as the church stand together. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in our church, that you would help us to discern when someone's going through a hard time, that you would help us to pray, that you would help us to reach out, that you would help us to love and and to demonstrate your love to those who are struggling. Before I continue the prayer, I just want to ask real quickly with your heads bowed, you may be here today and I mentioned about halfway through the message about the consequences for not surrendering our lives fully to Christ. And how it's not just a decision that affects your now, it's a a decision that affects your eternity. And you may be here this morning and have come to the realization that you've been just testing God's patience. You've been putting it off, a decision you know you need to make. You've been kicking that can down the road and just not making a decision. But by not making a decision, you're making the wrong decision. And today God is giving you an opportunity while that candle is still burning to say, I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to come home. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And I want to pray for you before you leave this morning. If you're here today and you would say, Pastor Jeff, God is speaking to me and I want to respond to him. I need to come home. Would you just lift your hand real quickly and let me see it so I can pray for you this morning before we leave. Give God the opportunity to transform your life. Okay. Then I want, before I close, I just want to ask if you're here and you say, the, this message really was designed for me because of what I'm going through, because of what I'm feeling, because of the weight that I'm carrying right now. And I need God's strength. I need to place my life in his hands and say, God, only you can see me through. And I want to pray for strength for you this morning. If that's you, would you just lift your hand real quick? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All over the room. Praise you, Lord. Would you just join your hearts with me as we pray? God, I just pray for those hands that were lifted all across the room. God, my heart breaks to see how many hands were lifted by people who are saying, God, I, I, I can't make it without you right now. The weight is so much that it's going to break me. And God, I pray that you would give them supernatural strength this morning to stand up underneath that. God, I pray that you would help them to shift their focus off of whatever that is. God, as hard as that can be because it is all-consuming sometimes, the pressure and, and the negativity and the problems and the real problems that we have to deal with in a real life. I get that. But God, I pray that you would help us on a regular basis, help everyone who raised their hand just now to take a moment to shift their eyes away from that problem and God to lock onto you. And Lord, I pray that as they fix their eyes on you, God, that you would flood them with a peace and a joy that just doesn't even make sense. God, I pray that they would have a a release right now that they have not experienced for weeks and maybe months, maybe even years, that God, you would give them that moment as they surrender. God, let that weight come off of them. And Lord, I pray that there would be a freedom that they experience in you today. God, even if their circumstances don't change right now, God, would you change them? Let them be different on the other side of this prayer. And God, I pray that you would prepare each one of us. God, not for 
what is to come in this life. But God, prepare us for eternity. Do whatever you need to do, God. And God, I pray that prayer with fear because I know what may come on the other side of it. But God, I mean it. Do whatever you need to do to prepare me for eternity. We thank you, Lord, for all the tools that you use to get us ready. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Amen.